Once again, good morning. Welcome to Community Christian Church. It's so good to have you with us. We're right in the middle of our first of the year message series entitled Letters from Jesus. Letters from Jesus. And the letters we're referencing in this series come right from the Bible. They're found in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And as discussed in previous lessons, right around AD 95, the Apostle John became a Roman prisoner on the island of Patmos, located just about 45 miles west of the region of Asia Minor. John, at the time, was the last remaining original disciple of Jesus. All the rest of them were gone. They had been martyred for their faith, killed in the most horrific way. And John, even though they had tried to execute him on several occasions, uh, they failed in their attempts, including a time when they placed him into boiling hot oil. And so since they couldn't shut him up that way, they decided to try and silence him a different way. And so there he was on the island of Patmos, virtually all by himself. His Christian family was 62 miles away in Ephesus. And when I say he was alone, I mean he had no spiritual support. No Christian brothers and sisters to communicate with, to pray with, or to have fellowship with. There were no community life groups on the island of Patmos. And John comes right out in Revelation chapter 1, and he tells us that he was a prisoner, that he was banished to Patmos because of his testimony of his faith in Jesus. That was his crime. It's the only thing that he did wrong. He came under tremendous persecution for preaching the gospel message, and he shared the island with a bunch of hardened convicted criminals. It was like a, an ancient Alcatraz. And they were all pretty much doing hard labor, quite possibly having to crush stones with a sledgehammer uh, for 10 hours uh, during the day. And in light of all that, all of that adversity, all of that trouble, that injustice and discouragement that John was going through, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10 tells us that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Can I get you to say that? He was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Can you believe that? On the island of Patmos, as a prisoner, John went to church on Sunday. He was in a makeshift church setting, worshiping the Lord, maintaining his loyalty and his faith in God, holding fast to the hope he had, even though it was one of the darkest and most difficult days of his life. And in that spiritual moment, that, that spiritual place that God provided for him, he had a vision of Jesus. It was a fresh revelation of Jesus. And in that vision, Jesus told him to write seven letters and to send those seven letters to the seven main churches in Asia. And these are the letters that we're looking at with this series. 
And we're calling them letters from Jesus because I firmly believe that if Jesus was dictating a letter to the church or to the churches today, he would be saying the very same things. He would be communicating the same subject matter and encouraging us in the very same way. And I reminded you that it was King Solomon who said, there's nothing new under the sun. Times and, change, uh, times and seasons change, but how many know people are people? And people remain the same. And so if we were to ask Jesus the question, what would you say to us today? If that would be our goal and our desire to hear from Jesus, I believe it's all right here in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Now, in all of the letters that Jesus wrote, all of the letters that he dictated to John, all seven of them, he said three things to the churches. In addition to passing along a personal message to each church, acknowledging their strengths and their weaknesses, he made three statements to all of the churches. They're in all of the letters. Number one, Jesus said, I know your works. In other words, it's right up there on the board, on, on the screen. In other words, I'm, I'm in your midst. I'm among you. I know exactly what's going on. I see everything that's happened in the church, good and bad. So I know your works. Number two, he that has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit is saying. And that's been our goal and desire with this series is to have a listening ear. How many of you want to hear from the Lord? Not from any other source. You want to hear what God is saying. So Jesus said, I know your works. He said, he that has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit is saying. And finally, number three, to him or to her who overcomes, there's great reward. Jesus said there is a specific benefit and prize for overcomers. You will receive something special from the Lord, Jesus said. And when I read that last statement, I'm all in, all over again. Because I know that when Jesus says something, he's true to his word. The scripture says all the promises of God are yes and amen. And to be sure, I don't serve the Lord because of the reward. We serve the Lord because of the sacrifice that he made for us on the cross. But how many of you know during the times of trouble and persecution, the reward can be great incentive? And so Jesus made sure to tell all the churches, I know what you're involved in. I can see what's going on. I want you to hear what the Spirit is saying. And I also want you to know that when you overcome, you will receive great reward. So let's take a look at this next letter found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And let's read it carefully. To the angel, or the pastor, of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. So who's dictating this again? This is Jesus. This is Jesus talking. He's the one who was the first and the last. He was the one who died and came to life again. He said, I know your works. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid. Say what? Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. 
I tell you the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will, be, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful. So do not be afraid, but be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has an ear to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious, or as the King James Version puts it, to him who overcomes, they will not be hurt at all by the second death. All right, let's stop right there. Located about 40 miles north of Ephesus, the church in Smyrna was known as the persecuted church. All the believers living in Smyrna, they faced some of the most intense persecution of all of the Christians living in the entire province of Asia. The believers, the saints in Smyrna, they were singled out. They were imprisoned. They were tortured. And many of them were killed. And trust me when I tell you, there was a lot of bloodshed and there was a lot of hardship in Smyrna. Now, there's a couple things that you need to know here that I'm going to try to communicate to you. Please hang in there with me. Smyrna was a very wealthy Roman city. And in AD 23, about 70 years before the writing of Revelation, the very first temple to Tiberius Caesar was built in, in Smyrna. They built a temple to Caesar in Smyrna. And there in Smyrna, where the temple was located, every citizen, each and every resident of Smyrna, they were required to burn incense to Caesar and to declare that Caesar was Lord. This was something that they did on a yearly basis. It was a ritual that everyone had to participate in, and they did it publicly. Every single resident and citizen living in Smyrna was required to declare and worship Caesar as their Lord. And once you burned the incense and you made your pledge, you were given a certificate of compliance. And that little certificate that they issued to you demonstrated your loyalty. And with certificate in hand, with your little white card in hand, you were considered a good citizen. And what I just described to you, it was Roman law in the entire province of Asia Minor. Every city, every village, every community, every territory, they had the Caesar is Lord statue on the books. Everywhere you went, they knew that the Romans made this mandate that citizens were to burn incense to Caesar and to declare his lordship. However, in some cities, the law and the mandate was not strictly enforced. Some of the towns, they had bigger fish to fry. And so they were not overly preoccupied with the allegiance to Caesar rule. And we see this even played out uh, in our lives today. How many of you know that distracted driving is against the law? It's a traffic violation in every city of every state in the United States. You will get a ticket 
for driving and texting at the same time if the police catch you. Everywhere in the United States. In Michigan, if you're texting and driving, you are facing a $100 fine the first time you get caught. The second time, you can double it. It's $200. If you decide to take a leisurely ride through Salt Lake City, Utah, and you're texting while you're driving, you'll be fined $750 the first time. The second time, they'll throw you in jail. So distracted driving is on the books everywhere as a traffic violation. Every city, every state in the United States. But how many of you know some police departments, they don't hang out waiting for you to text and drive. They've got some other activity that they're involved in, and so they don't enforce it to the letter of the law. That's how it was in Asia. Burning incense to Caesar and publicly declaring him to be your Lord, it was not always a top priority. But in Smyrna, it was severely and rigorously enforced. Roman officials in Smyrna, because of the Tiberius Temple, they had strict orders and policies, and they checked everyone for their compliance cards. They made a thorough search of every single resident and every person living in Smyrna, and if you didn't have your card on you, you had to explain why, and if you violated their laws, they threw the book at you. I mean, this was serious stuff in Smyrna. And how many of you know, burning incense to Caesar and declaring him to be your Lord was a huge problem for the believers. Because there's only one king and one Lord that we have as Christ's followers. His name is Jesus. We don't bow down to anyone. Philippians tells us, therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, not Caesar, not the President of the United States, not Tom Brady, but Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And so as you might imagine, the believers who did not bow to Caesar, the believers who refused to burn incense to Caesar, they were sorely mistreated. And check this out. Without their little compliance cards, they were labeled as bad citizens. People who were, who were politically disloyal and a danger to society. Christians were put in the troublemaker category and considered untrustworthy rebels and they were openly discriminated against. And the first thing that happened when you couldn't produce your card is you lost your job. You got fired. You see, there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing. It's the same spirit alive today that was taking place back then because it comes from the same source. His name is Satan. This is what the Christians in Smyrna were facing. And when the Roman authorities heard that Christian pastors 
and leaders were actually preaching against the burn incense to Caesar mandate, they went ballistic. And believers who couldn't show their cards, they were jailed, they were tortured, they were imprisoned, and they were killed. And I mean by the masses. Now, at the time of Revelation, right around AD 95, the pastor of the church in Smyrna was a man by the name of Polycarp. Can I get you to say that name? Polycarp. And everything that I'm about to tell you about Polycarp is documented in history. So this is not a legend or a tradition that I'm passing along to you that has gotten bigger and you know, uh, with more detail as the years have gone by. You can check this out on your own. You can find out that everything that I'm telling you about Polycarp is true. In fact, you can probably Google it and, and see it online. Polycarp was a personal disciple of the Apostle John. He was 25 years old, Polycarp was, when he became pastor of the church in Smyrna, and he was appointed as the pastor there by John himself when John was banished to the island of Patmos. Now, fast forward to the year A.D. 156. Polycarp was 86 years old. He had served the church in Smyrna for over 60 years, and he was a tremendous influence for the kingdom of God. I mean, everybody in the entire region of Asia Minor, all the churches knew about Polycarp. Polycarp had become a bishop at the time, and he was uh, someone who preached the gospel message with power and with authority. And one day during a season of intense persecution, uh, it came to the attention of the Roman authorities that Polycarp, uh, the pastor of Smyrna, he was preaching against the Caesar is Lord mandate. He was actually telling his congregations, Jesus is their Lord, not Caesar. So they signed a warrant for his arrest, sent out some Roman police officers, uh, probably a SWAT team, to his house. They arrested him forcibly. They dragged him before the magistrate. And the magistrate ordered a polycarp to renounce his faith in Jesus and to pledge his allegiance to Caesar. And this is what Polycarp said. This is how he responded. And again, you can find this quote in history. Polycarp said, 80 and six years, I've served the Lord and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? There's something you need to know about the Romans. Back in the day, the Romans, they really could care less about religion. There were countless gods back then, just like there's multiple gods today. And the Romans really didn't care that much about the flavor of your religion. So if you said you had a relationship with Jesus Christ and he was your savior that he saved you from your sins, they would probably mock you or laugh at you. 
But they vehemently opposed you saying that Jesus was your king or your Lord. Because there was only one Lord. His name was Caesar. And so when the governor heard Polycarp refer to Jesus as his king, he was livid. And he responded to Polycarp and he said, I want you to pledge your undivided loyalty to Caesar at this very moment or your dead meat. I am going to feed you to the lions. And once again, Polycarp responded. Here's what he said. Basically, bring it on. Because if you imagine for a moment that I would do anything like that, then I think you pretend that you don't know who I am. So hear it plainly, I am a Christian and Jesus is my Lord. He's my king. At that, the governor lost his mind. He said to Polycarp, I'm going to give you this one last chance. I want you to get down on your knees right now, bow your knee to Caesar, and you burn incense right here in my presence, or I am going to burn you alive. That was the threat this time. And once again, Polycarp responded, and he said this, you threaten me with fire that will burn for a short time and then it will be over. But what I'm more concerned about is a fire of judgment that will burn for all eternity. Then Polycarp lifted his eyes to heaven and prayed, dear heavenly father, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice. I praise you for all of these things. I bless you and glorify you through my eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ. And at that, they lit him up. They set him on fire. And that day, Polycarp was numbered with the martyrs. Now, we hear this story and we cringe on the inside. We don't even know this pastor, this wonderful man called Polycarp. And I'll bet some of you are fighting to hold back the tears. Maybe some of you shed a tear. We want to defend him. Like, why, God? Why did he have to die like that at 86 years old? He was, he was a wonderful Christian pastor. It makes no sense. You see, we hate death. We don't like to talk about death. We avoid death like the plague, like it doesn't even exist. And statistically, there is a tremendous amount of fear and death, of fear and anxiety associated with death. We read, even reading scriptures like this, reading what I just read to you, talking about Polycarp's life and the communicating his story, people are already freaked out on the inside. We don't like talking about dying. But how many of you know we're all going there? We all die. No exceptions, friend. No matter how much you try to avoid it, how much you put it out of your mind, that's where we're all going. And if Jesus delays his coming, we're all going to taste death. We're all going to experience death. But the voice and the blood of the martyrs, they teach us that there's something worse than death. It's living a life 
without a cause, without a conviction, and without purpose. Especially in the life of a believer, someone who has been redeemed and knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I tell you, Polycarp's death rallied the church. They got fired up. I mean, they started to preach the gospel message. They were so built up in the faith, people started getting saved left and right because the gospel message of Jesus Christ is powerful. There's nothing more powerful than living out that gospel. And they just watched their pastor live out what he was preaching to them. And some great things took place there in Smyrna, regardless of the persecution, even in the face of persecution. Now, earlier I told you that Jesus made three statements to all seven of the churches. You can read all the churches. They're all there. He said, I know your works. He that has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the church and to him or her who overcomes. In addition to those three statements, to all of the letters, all seven letters to the churches, Jesus also gave a brief description of himself. And those descriptions of Jesus, they changed from letter to letter. For instance, in Ephesus, Jesus said, I'm the one who holds the seven stars and the seven lampstands in my hand. To the church in Pergamum, Jesus said, I have a sharp, double-edged sword. In Laodicea, he said, I'm the faithful and the true witness. And here in his letter to, to Smyrna, in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 8, Jesus said this, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, the one who died and came to life again. This is the description he spoke of himself, that, the, the little statement that he made about himself to the saints or to the believers who were in Smyrna. I'm the first and the last, the one who died and came to life again. And I believe what Jesus was doing, he was encouraging the church and telling the saints, death doesn't have the final say. He was appealing to them to know that there's so much more to this life than living and dying. There's the promise Jesus was communicating to them, the promise of eternal life. In fact, in John chapter 11 and verse 25, at the gravesite of Jesus, and you know this well, here's what Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he that believes in me, even though they were dead, yet shall they live. You see, we don't have to fear death. Jesus said so. And in his letter to the church in Pergamum, in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, Jesus said, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Be faithful, even to the point of death. Why? Because I will give you the crown of life. It's an eternal crown. Jesus said, if you can see past what's happening right now, if you don't focus in on the persecution and the suffering and everything that's going on around you, I promise you eternal life with the Father forever and ever. Now, two weeks ago in lesson number one of this series, I told you that if Jesus was speaking to us today, the first thing that he would say to us is I am with you. Remember that? That the scripture says that he was standing among the lampstands and the lampstands 
represent the church. He wanted to communicate to us and communicate to us today that he's not going anywhere. He's not breaking covenant with us, removing his blessing or removing his grace from us. He absolutely loves his church, his bride. And he's all in with us. He said all the way to the very end. So that was the message that Jesus gave to us or would have gave to us in that very first lesson. The second uh, week, which was last week, to the church in Ephesus, Jesus said, repent and turn back to me. I want you to start doing the things that you did at first, when you first got saved. Go back and remember the love that you had when you couldn't wait to come into my presence, when love was a top priority. Do that, Jesus said. Don't be a loveless church, but put love at the very center of all that you do. Well, today, in lesson number three, if Jesus were talking, I think he would say to us, I know the culture that you live in. I know how difficult it is. I know what you're facing, and I know what you're up against, and how unfair it is. And today, it might be a little easier, and you might be tempted to just ease out of a passionate relationship with God publicly. Maybe a little easier to become a closet Christian in light of the culture today. Jesus is saying to the church in Pergamum, in Smyrna, and saying to us today, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't be afraid. But remain eternity-minded in the face of your persecution and suffering. This is the word that Jesus is speaking to this church. He's speaking to our church. Remain eternity-minded in the face of your persecution. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, Paul wrote, Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. One more time. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you die to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. You know, sometimes I think we have this backwards. We think that this is our real life. That this is all there is. I tell you, it's not. The scripture says this life is but a vapor. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. Jesus said there's more to this life than just living and dying. And please don't get me wrong. God wants us to live a blessed life here on earth. How I many you know Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and what? Have it more abundantly. Have it to the full. He wants us to live a blessed life. But earth is not the prize. This is not the best that God has to offer, especially to us who have been redeemed, who know Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior. The best is yet to come. The crown, the trophy, the reward that Jesus gives to us is on the other side of this life. That's our blessed hope. The glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is not it, friend. And so how do we turn it around? How do we tip the scale in the right direction and remain eternity-minded even though we're living this life today. 
with all of our issues, everything that we're going through, all of the cultural difficulties that we're facing, the different parts of life that we're trying to balance, how do we maintain our mindset and keep our focus on heaven? Well, let me give you five ways to do that real quickly. We're going to close with these five. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. You can find these all of them, all five of them in Colossians chapter 3, they come right after Paul the Apostle encouraged us to think about the things of heaven and not the things of earth. So you can look through these on your own. This is the way that we spend less time focused on what we're doing here and more time focused on what God wants us to do. Number one, Colossians 3.5. Put to death, therefore, what belongs to your earthly nature. One more time. Put to death, therefore, what belongs to your earthly nature. Don't put it aside. Put it to death. How many of you know we have an earthly nature? We all do. And more often than not, we default to it without even thinking about it. It's just what, it's what happens. Paul says, you want to become eternity-minded, you want to become heavenly-minded, then start punching holes in all of the areas of your life that are dominated and driven by fleshly and physical living. Number two, Colossians 3.12. In addition to putting to, death, to putting to death what belongs to the earthly nature, number two, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That's Colossians 3.12. Paul said, don't just try it on for size. Don't just put this outfit on when you're going to church. Wear it all the time. In fact, wear it out. Especially when you're tempted to be unkind or impatient. Because the more that you look the part, the more you put on holy, the more you practice holy, I mean, you know, the more you're going to feel holy. And the more you're going to become holy. I mean, you've got to look it to start it. Number three. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Let the peace of God rule. You know, we talk a lot about the peace of God. We all want it. But do we allow it to dominate, govern, preside over, and prevail in our lives? Because that's what that word rule means. Peace is not a part-time option for believers who are heavenly-minded. It should be in stock all of the time, 24-7. And Jesus said, I am the Prince of Peace, and I give you a peace that the world can't give you, a peace that passes all understanding. We have to allow this peace to rest in our hearts and to rule in our hearts. Number four, Colossians 3.16, let the word of God dwell in you richly. Two optimum words there, dwell and richly. Not just knowing the word casually, not just reading it or hearing somebody talk about it, but allowing the word to become a part of you. Let the power and the truth of God's word consume you. That's what David did. He said he hid God's word in his heart that he wouldn't sin against him. He said, God, your word, it's a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. Finally, number five. How do we tip the scale? so that we're more eternity-minded, so that we're not so focused on what's happening around us. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do it all for God. Do it all 
as unto the Lord. Think about that for just a moment. Everything that you do, doing it as unto the Lord. Not for somebody else, not for your church, not for your community or for your workplace. You're doing it, you're living your life as unto the Lord. Now, why would we do something like that? Why would we put that much emphasis and that much focus into our relationship with Jesus? Because he's worthy of it. He alone is worthy. He died a horrific death on the cross to secure our salvation, and he is worthy of our honor and praise in that kind of life. Besides that, the scripture tells us that he is currently seated at the right hand of the Father where he ever lives to make intercession for us. Friends, he's not just standing around doing nothing. I told you he's among us. He's, his presence is here. It's just not so that we feel good or that we feel the presence of God. He is cheering us on. He is cheering the church on. He wants to see the church succeed. And so he gives us these words of encouragement. He gives us instruction. And here in this message, he says the church needs to be eternity-minded, not earthly-minded. Let's pray. Father, the prayer that Phil prayed a few moments ago and the prayer that he exhorted us with is so very important to us. That, Lord, we would be willing to hear, to surrender, and to shift in accordance with what the Spirit is saying to us. I think I would be a little remiss if we didn't pray for the persecuted church and mention them before you, Lord. Those who are imprisoned, those who are being tortured and even killed for the gospel message. We thank you, Lord, that that's not the case here where we live. We don't know what's going to happen down the road. But, Lord, it's the voice and the blood of the persecuted church that speaks the loudest. It speaks volumes to our hearts, Lord. Because you're encouraging us, you're exhorting us in this letter to the church in Smyrna to not allow the persecutions to trip us up. To not allow the trouble and the adversity that we face and all the darkness around us to keep us hidden and back. We want to be on the forefront of all that you're doing, Lord. We want to be so focused on what you have in store for us in the life to come that we are listening carefully and marching to the beat of the drum that you give to us. I pray, Lord God, you would take us from the place of good intentions, the place of first-of-the-year commitments and resolutions, to a place of movement. And that's why, Lord, as a church, we commit to you that we're running. We're not just walking. We're running, Lord. We're running to the place of your presence, 
And I thank you, Lord. I thank you for a congregation of people who are willing to hear and respond. Again, Jesus said to each of the churches, he that has an ear, let them hear. Father, give us a listening ear today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's all stand. Thank you.